If you're visiting, if you're new here, welcome. Uh, if you're looking for a church home, as Jenny Lynn said, please let us know. We'd love to get to meet you. Or if you're a longtime member or watching online with us, uh, we are privileged to have you worshiping with us this morning. We're thankful that you're here. Dan mentioned last week in our series on Acts that we would be pausing that series for a couple months. Uh, we're going to spend the next four weeks in the book of Ruth and then four weeks talking about the vision of the church. But that means this morning we get the privilege of beginning in Ruth chapter 1. Now, anytime we begin a new book of the Bible, we want to understand the context. We want to understand the big idea of the book, right? Because every book in the Bible has different themes, has different messages that we could explore. As I was looking into both the context of the book of Ruth, but also chapter 1, I was struck that we could spend four months on the book of Ruth if we wanted to. There's really so much there. But since we only have four weeks to do it, do these four chapters, it's important that we understand the context, the overview of what you're supposed to look for, of what we want to highlight in this book. So one of my favorite television shows is a show called The Wire. The Wire's from the early 2000s. It's a show about the Baltimore police and their relationship between the government and the schools and organized crime and those type of things. But there's a, a police major in the show, one of the more noble characters, and he asks his officers all the time, where are you at, right? Where are you at? He wants them to be able to identify their location down to the very room that they're in, right? So I'm facing south at Restoration Community Church at 11971 Borman Drive in Maryland Heights, Missouri, right? That's how they would respond to him. And his point in asking that was that a good police officer would always be aware of where he or she was located in case they need to call for backup in case they need to know what direction they're headed, in case they need to get out of a dangerous situation, in case they need to understand the part of the city where they're policing. They need to know where they're at at that moment. And that's the same for us when we encounter the Bible. We need to understand our location. We need to know where we're at in the book of the Bible. We want to understand that in two different ways. The first is, where is the story that we're reading located? Where is it located in the history of God's people? What are the characters in the story facing at that time? What would have been their concerns? What would have been their suffering and their difficulty? What are the historic circumstances around them? What's their relationship to God in that time in history? We also want to ask where we're at today. What are the moments that we're facing, both individually as a church, as a city, as a country, as a world? What is going on in our lives right now? And so how does the location of that story have to do with our location today? Or how might it impact us moving forward? So understanding where we're located is important anytime we come to a book of the Bible. Now, fortunately for us, the first five verses of chapter one of Ruth give us a ton of information on that. I'm going to invite up Micah to read chapter 1 for us, and then we're going to talk through some of that context. If you want to turn to it, it's on page 222 of the Bible in the, in the pew. As you're turning there, and as Micah's reading chapter 1 for us, I want you to focus on the word redemption. That word's going to serve as an anchor for us over these four weeks. If the book of Ruth is about anything, it's about how God works out redemption in this broken world. 
It looks forward to how God's going to bring redemption to the nation of Israel, to his covenant people through all time. It's going to look at how he brings redemption to the lives of individual people, women in particular, and how they serve as both objects and agents of redemption. Now, the word redemption isn't going to appear in the text in chapter 1, but the question of redemption, the longing for it, the hope for it is going to be there. So as Micah reads, as you look at the text, as you listen, keep your eyes and ears open for the idea of redemption. Let's give our attention to God's word in Ruth chapter 1. Thanks, Micah. So, like I said, the first five verses gives us a ton of context for the book of Ruth. I want to take just a minute and look at some of that historic context so that we understand where we're at, particularly verse 1. We're told that these events occur in the days when the judges ruled and that there was a famine, right? Well, that immediately tells us two things about where we're at. First of all, if you're not familiar with the Bible, we're about 1,200 to 1,000 years before Jesus. We know that because of this reference to the judges. This is an incredibly tumultuous time in the history of God's people, right? Israel has escaped from Egypt under the leadership of Moses. They've entered the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. And at the end of his life, Joshua warned the people that entering the promised land wasn't the end of the story. Right? That wasn't where it all ended. They would have an ongoing choice of whether to follow the God of Israel or to turn away from him and follow other things. Now, the people promised to Joshua that they're going to follow God, that they're going to stay faithful to God, but that promise is short-lived. Right? Joshua dies in Judges chapter 2, right after it tells of his death, says this, There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so that rebellion against God leads to the book of Judges being this time of turmoil for Israel and for God's people. The entire book is about the downward spiral of Israel. The downward spiral of Israel in rebellion against God and God providing suffering and judgment And then providing judges to redeem the people, to bring them out of that rebellion. But they keep falling back into it. They keep rebelling and suffering again. Now, one of the curses that God had promised to bring on the people if they rebelled back in Deuteronomy 28 was famine. So when the verse 1 tells us this was a time of the judges and there was a famine, we immediately locate this story during a particular season of Israel's life. We know that Israel is in the time of the judges and in rebellion against God and suffering the consequences of that rebellion. So that's our 30,000-foot historical view of the book of Ruth. That's when this takes place. Now, oftentimes when the Bible introduces a conflict like that, time of famine, It also immediately introduces the source of God's redemption from that circumstance. And that happens here, but actually in a very different way than we, or especially the original audience reading this, would have expected. We're introduced to an Israelite man, Elimelech, from the town of Bethlehem in Judah. But we're immediately told that he leaves Bethlehem to sojourn in Moab. Now, that's our first sign that something's going to be strange about this story, 
right? Bethlehem means the house of bread. So we wouldn't be surprised to hear about a, an Israelite man from the house of bread rising up during a famine to redeem Israel. But this man leaves Bethlehem. He leaves Israel with his family to sojourn in the country of Moab. Now this would have been shocking not just because Moab was a historic enemy of Israel, but also because Moab was cursed by God. So to leave Bethlehem, to leave the house of bread, and to go to this cursed land would have been shocking for anybody that was reading this story. Now, the text doesn't make any judgments about that decision, right? We've all faced decisions where uh, things are, are, we're suffering and we're kind of faced with the choice of two evils, right? In this case, should Elimelech stay with his family where there's a famine, or should he go to this land that's cursed by God, but that might have food where they could survive, right? We're not told whether that decision that he makes is right or wrong, but what we are told is that things don't get better for him and his family. They get much worse, right? In verse 3, Elimelech, who we thought might be the main character, dies. We're not told how he dies, but we're told that his wife, Naomi, is left with his two sons, Malon and Chilion. They survive him. So again, the reader might think, okay, well, he has these two sons, right? Maybe they're the instruments of God's redemption of Israel, right? In the ancient worlds, sons were valued, not just because they were the ones who could work and provide and protect the family, but because they could have more sons that would continue the name of their father's family. In verse 4, we meet their wives, Orpah and Ruth, they're Moabite women, which maybe isn't the best decision, but faced with the circumstances that they are in Moab, this is probably the only thing they could do. It's not a decision that's explicitly condemned in the Bible to marry Moabites. So we think, okay, maybe they're married now. They'll have sons. This will be the source of God's redemption for Israel. But verse 5 brings another twist in the story. Malon and Chilion die. And worse, we're told, they have no children, particularly no sons to carry on the name of their family. Now, some of you might be wondering why I've been so explicit in mentioning the husband and the sons and the name of the family being carried on through the sons, their roles as potential instruments of God's redemption. And the reason for that is that I want you to understand what these five verses are trying to communicate when we're left with the widow Naomi and her two widowed daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. I want you to understand how in that world, what kind of desperation this would have communicated. You see, they lived in a world where men held nearly all the power. They held nearly all the positions, all the ability to make money, all the ability to care for a family, everything that would have enabled a family to thrive in that time in history, in that world, was through the men. It was built on the husband and the sons. And so the women were treated as secondary. Women's identity were found primarily in their husband and secondarily in their ability to produce children particularly sons. And so women were viewed in that world as second-class citizens. 
daughters weren't viewed as blessings. They were viewed as burdens and expendable. Women were not viewed with value. What mattered was the husband and his sons. And so these five verses to end with a widow and her two sons or her two daughters without their sons is meant to be a shock to the audience that's reading this. This is devastating to any hope the reader might have for this to be a story about God's redemption. The men are gone. I want you to imagine how devastating that would have been for Naomi in that world. If you want a glimpse into how significant this would have been, how she would have been feeling in this life, in this world, let me tell you about a practice called sati. Sati was a practice in that time in parts of uh, ancient India where upon the death of her husband, a wife would throw herself on his funeral pyre to burn to death with his body. The reason for that was that without a husband in that world, her life was disposable. What purpose did she serve? Her identity was gone. Her security was gone. That's the way the ancient world viewed women. Now, as I share all of that, we here think about that way of viewing women, their value, their identity, their role in the world, their role in the family. We see that as horrendous, and rightly so. But I want you to understand that the reason that you and I view that as appalling, as horrendous, is because of the Bible, because of stories like Ruth, where widows, who in some parts of the world would have thrown themselves on the funeral pyres of their husbands, are in our story elevated to become the primary characters in God's story of redemption for the world. That's how countercultural God's approach to women is. We think the way that we think today because for 3,000 years, the Bible has elevated women in the world. It's called women into God's plan of redemption. It's shown women to be vital parts of that work. It's identified women as equal image bearers alongside of God. It's valued daughters as equal blessings alongside of sons. It's called for God's people to care for and to value widows. Now, I know that many of you here have been hurt by people that have weaponized parts of God's word against women. And let me say, first of all, I'm sorry for what you've been told, the ways that you've been treated, the way that God's word has been misused against you. And I know that that's caused many people here, many people in the world, in the church today to ask, is the Bible good for women? Does God care about women? Do women have a place in the work that God's doing in the world? But that's why the book of Ruth is in the Bible. That's why books like this, where women are given this value, this importance to God, are vital for us. It's why we preach about it. It's why we talk about it. It's why we go back over and over again to it. Because these events and these moments in history are radically countercultural. See, for nearly all of the ancient world, this story ends at verse 5. This story ends when it says, the woman 
is left alone without her husband, without her sons, and only her daughters-in-law. That's when the story ends because her life is over, but not when God is the author of the story. Not when God is at work. That's not the life that God has for women in his kingdom. That's not the life that God has for women as he does his redemptive work in the world. One author said it like this, a woman's high calling as God's image bearer renders her incapable of insignificance. No matter what has gone wrong in her life, no matter how much she's lost, no matter what the culture tells you, there's a value that comes from God that tells a different story than what the world does. And so this story continues on past verse 5 in really unexpected ways. We're going to see that this morning, but also over these next three weeks. It begins this morning with both Orpha and Ruth and Naomi wrestling with their faith and trust in God. Look back with me at the rest of the chapter, starting in verse 6. We'll look at Naomi first, even in the midst of the overwhelming circumstances that Naomi faces. She still moves forward in faith. Did you catch that? Now, when we hear about someone moving forward in faith, we tend to imagine that as some kind of resilient faith that trusts God no matter what the circumstances. It believes despite experience. But it ought to serve us as a lesson for us what Naomi's moving forward in faith looks like. We see that Naomi's moving forward in faith is both resilient and willing to wrestle with a God that she does not completely understand. Look at some of the way that the text describes Naomi's faith. On the one hand, you do see resilience and trust, right? Verses 6, 8, and 9. She arose to return to Israel because she heard that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. She blesses Orpha and Ruth, and she asks them to leave, saying, May the Lord deal kindly with you. May he help you find new husbands, even in the midst of your trauma that you've been through. Despite all she's been through, Naomi still has an expectation that the Lord blesses. That the Lord blesses his people back in Israel. That he might even bless these two Moabite women who aren't even part of his people. She has a resilient faith, but she also has a faith that wrestles. Look at verses 13, 20, and 21. She says, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord's brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Do you see how she's wrestling through what she knows to be true of God? But what her experience is? Now, I don't know about you, but that kind of wrestling is what resonates with me. How many times have you found yourself knowing something to be true about God, knowing it intellectually, knowing it theologically, but having to fight to believe it because what you are going through doesn't seem to agree with that? What you're going through feels like God has abandoned you, has taken everything 
from you. I spent time talking about Naomi and the way this passage relates to women earlier. Half this room maybe is, is men. Maybe you didn't resonate quite as much with that part, although I'm, there are parts that you certainly could, but you can resonate certainly with this part. Everybody in this room can resonate when we hear Naomi in the midst of having everything in her life taken away from her, wrestling with God to say, I believe, help my unbelief. What is God doing? He's gonna bless you. He hasn't blessed me. He's turned away from me. His hand is against me. What is that wrestling and that faith? How does that resonate with you? That's my experience in life with God. I understand that. I've been there before. Right? We've been taught that the older we get, the more mature that we grow in our faith, we're going to be able to resist that kind of wrestling. The more solid and firm things about God are going to be to us. And again, there's that aspect in what you hear from Naomi. There's a firm trust and belief in Naomi. But the brokenness of the world is hard. It hurts us. It wounds us deeply in ways that just having the right theology about God isn't going to erase. But that's another reason why the story of Ruth and a character like Naomi ought to be so compelling to us. Here's a person who has been crushed and cast aside by the brokenness of the world in nearly every way possible for her in that culture. And these circumstances lead her to wrestle with the question of whether God has cast her aside as well. These are the kind of stories that God puts in his own word for us to resonate with. That's Naomi's argument to Ruth and Orpah, right? She says, turn around, go home. God might have more for you, but he doesn't have more for me. There's nothing left for me. And this is a significant moment in God's redemptive story. The focus at this point uh, has been on Naomi, but now we're introduced to Ruth. Ruth refuses to leave. One author said that there ought to be a stone of remembrance on the road from Moab to Israel, marking the spot where Ruth refused to go. Because this is going to be significant, not just in their lives, but in the history of Israel. This is significant for you right here this morning. You're going to see that over the next three or four weeks. This is a woman who somehow experienced nearly as much devastation as Naomi, but she makes a decision that seems absolutely absurd, but is full of faith. Ruth says to Naomi, do not urge me to leave or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And listen to this. Your God shall be my God. You catch what's happening right there? As she wrestled with God, Naomi just told Ruth, don't come with me because the hand of God has gone out against me and there's no hope where I'm going. And Ruth says, I'm going with you and that God will be my God, right? Mark this place in your Bible. Come back to this later. Verse 16 is one of the most significant moments of faith in the entire Bible. This childless, 
Moabite widow who has just, just rejected every logical argument, every instinct of self-preservation, uh, uh, every rational opportunity to hope. Why? Because somewhere in her journey, either her physical journey on this road with Naomi or her emotional journey through her pain of the last few years of her life, somewhere in her journey, Ruth met Yahweh. Ruth encountered the God of Israel. He met her in her pain. He met her in her wrestling. He met her in her suffering. And in the midst of those things, he was there with Ruth. So she doesn't offer theological platitudes to Naomi in, her, in response. She simply says, I have no choice. Yahweh is my God. I have to go with you. Now I want to make sure that you understand that we're not saying that Naomi was wrong and Ruth was right in their responses to suffering in the way that they cry out to God, right? The, the point of this story particularly is not to say one of them is greater than the other, but to show us that these two women, women who would have been thrown away by the world, are in fact incredibly significant to God, are allowed to wrestle with God, and are allowed to be part of and are vital to his redemptive work. Both of them teach us about suffering, and they teach us about wrestling with faith. They teach us about the questions that we ask in our day-to-day -day lives about ourselves and about God, about whether he's on our side or not. Even in a completely different culture, in a completely different world, 3,000 years later, these lessons are for us. We're going to learn from them over these three weeks about them, through them, about God. Now, even though they're wrestling in slightly different ways, there is something they have in common, and that's what I want to end with this morning. What Ruth and Naomi have in common is that they recognize in their wrestling that there's a need to return to God's covenant community. Now, in our English translation, you saw the word return eight times. I don't know whether you heard that or picked that up or were looking for it. There's also four more uses of the word in the Hebrew. So there's 12 times in 22 verses it says return. That's enough repetition in a short time that it ought to catch our attention, that we ought to realize something's trying to be taught to us here. And I think what it teaches us is that a return to God's covenant community is the path to God's redemption and restoration in your life. So this idea of returning becomes front and center in chapter one, right? You have the devastation of the first five verses. And so then the question, what will Naomi do? Will she return to God's covenant people? Or will she stay where she's at? What will Ruth and Orpah do as they're faced? Will they return to Moab? Or will they go with Naomi to her people? The question of returning is always at the center of chapter 1. And that makes verse 16, Ruth's declaration, even more powerful. Notice the language. I talked earlier about the individual language. Your God will be my God. But also notice the communal language. Your people will be my people. 
Entering into relationship with God always means entering into relationship with his family, with his covenant community. Now, in a context where community was absolutely vital to survival, Ruth recognizes this immediately. She knows she's not just entering into relationship with Yahweh, an individual relationship with God, but that she's part of a new community. In this particular moment, we see it in her unwavering, bold commitment to Naomi in that conversation. But we're going to see it in later chapters. We're going to see the work of God's covenant community in the lives of Ruth and Naomi. We're going to see the work of God through them for that community. That's how God works. God invites us not just into an individual relationship with him, but into a family. God's covenant community is the stage for his redemptive work. And that comes eventually to its fullest expression in the person of Jesus, who, spoiler alert, has Ruth in his genealogy. That's where all of this is headed in the future. This story is going to continue over these next few weeks as a story about the faith journey and wrestling and returning of these two women and God's work of redemption through them to his covenant community. And that points all the way to Jesus that points all the way to us today. Jesus is going to be the ultimate answer to our wrestling and our returning. He's going to be the ultimate answer to the question of God's redemption for his people, which means even in this story, in Ruth chapter 1 today, we're pointed to Jesus, and it points to us. So where are you in this story this morning? What are the ways that you're wrestling with God through your faith, asking questions about trust? What are the ways that you need to return to his covenant community. Now, obviously, you're here this morning, so you have some connection with this community, but do you come out of duty and obligation? Or do you come here with hopeful expectation that this might be the place that God is going to work redemption in your life? Not this building, but these people, this community. We invite you to worship on Sunday morning and to community group like we talked about earlier and to Bible study that we're going to hear about next week, not because we want to have so-and-so number of people coming to our events or being at our church. No, we, be, we do it because we really believe the story of Ruth is true. We really believe that wrestling with God in your faith journey, returning to God's covenant community is the way that God is going to work redemption in your life the covenant community is the body of jesus and you cannot have jesus without his body the two are linked together forever and god does that for your redemption and your flourishing so let's learn about that together over these next few weeks let me pray fathers we come to the table as we come to yet another marker in the road where we're pointed toward your redemptive work in the broken world. Let us learn from Ruth and Naomi. Let us learn to wrestle and return. Let us learn to fight through the suffering, not to dismiss it, 
not to act like it didn't happen, but to wrestle through it with you, knowing that Jesus suffered on our behalf so that we might have life with you eternal. In your name we pray. Amen.